Take your Bible, if you would. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Acts 26. We're getting very close to the end of this book. We have been at this for a long time, and it's neat to see as it comes towards the end here. We start to see Paul's defenses. We've already seen several, and now he's going to be before Agrippa today. We kind of left a little bit of a cliffhanger last week as we uh, got ready to hear Paul's defense but did not get into it. We'll get to that today. I I wonder if you've thought about this, or if I just a quick question for you. If if what you believed was wrong, would you want to know? I think most people say yes. But it's amazing. Um, I have never had this exact interaction with someone before, but I, I was watching a video of someone who was interviewing college students on a secular college campus about the gospel, and he said, if the gospel was true, would you believe it? And the man said, no. In fact, think about how difficult it is to change your mind after you have, after you have been set on something. How hard is it to do a 180? It's, it's very difficult. Just last week, I did a 180. My, my wife says, she's so curious, what happened? See, I, I actually went out and I bought multivitamins. <laughs> and I put them in my bathroom and I started taking a multivitamin. And, and I am just, I, I am, she is floored. What happened to you, Marshall? Why did you decide to start taking, and I don't know, I think I'm just getting older and I decided I need to start taking better care of myself. <laughs> but it's hard to do that when you've been sitting there saying, you know, vitamins are stupid and they, your body doesn't absorb them. And who would say such things like this? How easy is it to admit you're wrong or how hard is it? Now, the jury's still out on the multivitamin, just to be clear giving it a shot. We'll see what happens. But how easy is it to admit you're wrong, to do the 180, to, to basically say, okay, um, I was wrong. If you, what you believe was wrong, would you want to know? It surprises me that not everyone says yes. Some people are so set that if, they were, if you were to demonstrate that they are wrong, they don't care. They're going to keep doing what they're going to do. Uh, the um, the beginning of this text, let's look at our introduction here. In, in verse 1, we have just a beginning introduction, first few verses here. We have Agrippa, who is Agrippa II, King Herod Agrippa, who's sitting with Bernice, his sister, and Festus, the governor of this region. And Paul has been brought in to testify. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Paul stands to speak for himself. He will not be required or he will not have the, the help of someone else. But he will make a defense, not really, as we find out of himself, as much as he will defend the gospel message. And the defense, as he defends the gospel, challenges the people there. Does the gospel, as the gospel itself, as he defends it, the gospel does have the authority, God has the authority to reorient your life around himself. And Agrippa was a perfect audience, as he says here. You are aware of the Jewish dynamic. You are very aware, unlike Festus, who was clueless. Herod, 
knew. He was a Jew. He had uh, connections to appointing high priests, and he was sympathetic to the Jewish cause. King Herod the Great had been involved in the building of the Jewish temple. This man was not disconnected from the Jews. He understood the Jewish situation, and so this sets the stage for Paul's speech. And we have a lot of information similar to other stories of Paul's testimony of his salvation, but here, tailor fit to King Agrippa, Paul shares what God did in his life. Let's bow for prayer and then see what the Lord did in Paul's life. Father, I ask your blessing on our time together, our short time in the Word. Uh, We pray for your power to be present in the words that I speak and in the words from your Word. We know that we need to believe and apply the Scripture. We know that it is your Word. We know that it has power. And so we ask, Lord, you would open up hearts to be receptive to the truth today. Help us to be willing to change as the truth demands of us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin, the title of the message is God's Call to the Sincere. And I think you'll understand what I mean in a moment, because Paul begins by painting a picture of his own life, his past life, a life of sincerity, trying to follow the God of his fathers. If you'll follow with me in verses 4 through 8, we see Paul had a sincere desire to trust God's Word. We'll come back to that first point in a minute. But if you look at the subpoint, there is a sincere desire to trust God's Word. He says, my manner of life, verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, Paul speaking here, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem. All the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived, a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes are earnestly serving God day and night, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Paul begins by retelling the story of his youth and his sincere desire to trust the Lord. He wanted to trust God, and he wanted to follow God. Paul was not a young rebel. Paul was not one of the ones pushing the boundaries. He said, I was was obedient to God. He says, you've known me from the first. You've known me for a long time, if you're willing to admit it. He said, if you're willing to understand or or testify to it, he said, you know me from the beginning. I was a Pharisee. Now, the word Pharisee comes from the Greek word or the Hebrew word to divide. It has the idea of being one who who divides the law, who is very careful about the the work of the law. And we know this in our context because most of us, if I call you a Pharisee, am I giving you a compliment? Some of you are like, I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure. But most of you are like, no, I don't want to be called. If I say, you little Pharisee, what have I just said? I've called you like a bad word. You would, you would get very angry at me. You'd say, Pastor, that's not very kind of you. Because in our culture, in our context, from understanding the Scripture and how Jesus confronts the Pharisees, and we think Pharisee, we think bad. But you recognize that in this context, and in, in, the, in the time of the Jews, Pharisees were very careful about the law, and they were considered the good guys. Like, they, did, they, didn't, they were not idol worshipers. They kept the Sabbath. And remember, the Jews had been uh, in Babylon for years, for 70 years of captivity. They come out of Babylon. They establish the, they, we, say, we don't want this to happen again. We want to be careful about obeying the law. And they reestablish themselves in the promised land. And we have these Pharisees come out of that tradition of being careful followers of the law of God. So when Paul says, I was a Pharisee, he's saying, I'm a careful reader, studier, and obedient person of God's word. I am not careless. And he said, I'm not a rebel. I'm careful with the law. If you look at verse 6, he says, uh, you know, 
he says, and now I stand and I am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He says, the, the problem you have with me is not that I'm downplaying God's promise. In fact, I'm not denying God's promise. The problem you have with me is because I have pointed to the promise of God in the Old Testament and declared that they have been fulfilled in Jesus, that they have been actualized, that they have arrived, that I am taking God at his word, and I'm seeing God's word fulfilled. He said, in fact, at this time, look at verse 7, he says, this is the promise the 12 tribes, this is the promise that the nation of Israel had wanted to attain. They'd earnestly done this through serving God. The word service there has to do with, with a lot of times, with, with the idea of worship and the idea of, of going through priests and, and doing sacrifices and things like that. And look at verse 8, the sincerity of his question, the centerpiece, really, of this question is, he says, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead. What a question. In fact, the word you there is plural, and I don't know if he like turns, and a lot of um, commentators think that he, he kind of turns to the people watching, and he says, why is it so odd to think that God raises the dead? Why is it, why is it strange to you? Why should it be thought incredible to you? If you believe in God, if you sincerely believe in God, why should the resurrection of Jesus be a problem? Why would it present an issue to you? Paul's sincerity did not stop at his desire to trust God's word. We see his also he had a desire, a sincere desire to defend the truth. We, if we keep reading about his story in verse 9, he continues to tell you about how far he went to defend what he believed truth was. Look at verse 9. Indeed, he said, I myself thought I must do. I was compelled to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, this I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He said, I must do many things contrary to Jesus' name. He was compelled by his belief and his sincerity to afflict and to, to go against those who believed in Jesus. He lists the things he did in Jerusalem. And he says this because he did this in the sight of those who were accusing him. Remember, he's surrounded by Jewish leaders there in, and now he's in Caesarea, but they have come from Jerusalem. He said, I shut up the saints in Jerusalem. He said, when they were brought to death, I cast my vote against them. I willingly put my vote against them. He says, I punished them in every synagogue. And then he says, he compelled them. He forced them to blaspheme. Now imagine how difficult this was for Paul to admit, because he forced others to blaspheme the God whom he loved now. Jesus Christ, he, he loved, he would willingly suffer for Jesus, yet these, they suffered too, and he had been the reason they suffered. And in fact, if you look at the end of verse 11, he says that he was, the reason that he had these harsh punishments and persecutions was he was angered and enraged. He had a rage in his heart. What he probably considered a righteous anger, he was very, very angry. He even chased them out of Jerusalem into foreign cities to persecute them. He had a sincere desire to defend the truth against what he saw as a challenge to the truth. That is the story of Christ. But here's the point. I want you to go back to the beginning of your point. I want you to notice something. He was sincere, but he was wrong. And God's call, God's message to sincere people is you can be sincere and you can be wrong. You can sincerely in your heart believe something. You can even 
act on that sincere belief, but you can be wrong. Paul is a great example of this, and he tells them, he says, I was a very sincere person. I did things by the book. I was sincere, but I was sincerely wrong. First, we have to see that point. Secondly, I want you to know that he was confronted then by the demands of Christ. A sincere person is not going to be accepted and waved along into heaven because of their sincerity. The sincere person will be confronted by the demands of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to heaven and you stand before God as a sinner, but a sincere sinner, God will not look at you and say, well, I guess you were nice and sincere, so we'll let you in the door. God does not forgive our sins because of our sincerity. God does not bless us because we are sincere. What demands does, a, does Christ make on the life of a sincere person? First of all, Christ demands that this sincere person listen to a new authority. Look at verse 12. While thus occupied, if you have a pencil you like to write in your Bible, thus occupied, you can circle it and draw an arrow up, indicating that he's talking about all the things he was doing. He was busy about the work of the Jewish leaders. He was persecuting and harming other people. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus, he's out of Jerusalem, chasing the Christians to foreign cities. He says, with authority and commission from the chief priests. Who is he obeying right now? He has the authority. He has the commission of those chief religious religious leaders. This is his authority right now. Verse 13, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so I said, Lord, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He thus occupied, engaged in this work, is interrupted by the glory of Christ. And the glory, shining glory of Christ is a picture throughout the Bible. So many times people come into interaction with a glorious shining light that is overwhelming them. And this is brighter than the sun. And as Christ addressed him, he talks to him in his own native tongue, in the Hebrew language. He confronts him and he says, who are you? I want you to notice how Jesus takes this persecution personally. In each one of the times that Jesus is speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus, every time it's recounted for us, he says this, you are persecuting me. A persecution of the church is a persecution of me. And he identifies himself in verse 15. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But Paul has this interesting detail. In this version of his story, as he tells the story, he recounts and he, he includes the detail that Jesus speaks to him and says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what is he saying? A goad or prick, your Bible might have, was a stick that was used to prod along cattle. And to kick against the goads would be to rebel against the pushing and the prodding of the master. What he's saying here is that this stick is a picture of what he was feeling in his heart, that Jesus is saying something about Paul's state of mind. Listen carefully. As Paul followed human leaders, and as Paul persecuted the church, as Paul went around and tried to squash all of those who had followed Christ, while he did this, he was personally conflicted. 
He was, yes, sincere, but at his heart, he was personally conflicted because he knew, there the, that he knew that Jesus was the truth, is the truth, but he did not know how to handle that. He was trying to reconcile this in his mind. And God had been working on him. God had been prodding him. God had been poking him. And his conscience it was conflicted every time he made someone blaspheme. And Paul knew the truth. So that's why Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. It's hard for you to to reject me. It's hard for you. I am reorienting your life, and it's been hard for you to rebel against this. Christ was calling Paul to listen to a new authority. Paul, who knew better, had not yet submitted to this authority yet. This authority would not be the human authority of the chief priest. It would be the authority of Jesus himself, the one he had been persecuting. When Christ comes into the life of a sincere person, he demands you listen to a new authority. And that means you need to recognize Jesus as your authority. You come to Christ, you say, Christ, you are my authority. Christ reorients everything. Further, Christ demands he follow a different path. And we see this immediately. He, he listens to the new authority, and then he tells him to do something different. When I was in ROTC, we had an illustration given one time about chain of command. We were told that if a, a sergeant tells you to do something, you do it. But if a captain were to intervene and tell you to do something, you do what the captain said. But if a colonel were to stop you on the way to serving the captain and tell you to do something else, then you do what the, the, they do what the colonel said. But you get the picture. If the general were to stop you and say, the chain of command, the order of command, means that the highest authority, the person in charge, is the one you follow. And Jesus here pulls rank on the religious leaders at the time because Paul was on his way to Damascus under the authority of the religious leaders, and Jesus says, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to do something else. Look at verse 16. He says, rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I have yet to reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Paul is being sent on a new mission, verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is told immediately to rise up, to stand up, and has been given a purpose as a helper, a minister, and a witness, a martyr for Jesus. Notice on verse 17, I want you to just point, point this out to you. That Christ, as he gives him this commission, takes responsibility for his safety. You see that? In verse 17, he says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people and as well from the Gentiles to whom I send you. Christ promises to deliver him. He, he is sent to a certain group, but many of those people will not receive him. But Jesus takes responsibility for his safety because Christ gives him his mission. What is his mission? Verse 18, open their eyes. This is an analogy for speaking the truth to them. You are to turn them from a dark way of living to the light. God is the God of light. In him is no darkness at all. We are to shine the light in a dark place. When the light comes, the darkness dissipates. When the light comes into the world, when the light comes in, it puts away of darkness. It puts, it puts darkness to bed. He says, you turn them away from the power of Satan to God. There's the implication here that although they were people of the chosen people of God, the Jews, they were part of God's chosen people, they were bound by Satan himself. They're under the power of Satan. He says, you need to turn them from that power of Satan 
to God. Even the Jews and the Gentiles needed this deliverance. This was your mission. And what's the result in verse 18? The second part of verse 18 says this, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance. There's a twofold benefit or a twofold result. First, forgiveness. Forgiveness is granted through the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Sin must be paid for. And when, we die, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sin once and for all so that our sins can be paid for. We can receive forgiveness through the power of Christ. There is no other way to receive forgiveness. You cannot go to a priest and receive forgiveness because that priest did not die for you. You cannot go to someone else and receive forgiveness of sins against God because that person did not. Jesus died for you, and he can grant you total and perfect forgiveness, and that forgiveness is through Jesus the Christ. Secondly, you can receive an inheritance among those in faith. This means you will receive a home in heaven. You will receive eternal blessings from God. John 14 talks about, I go to prepare a place for you. There is, a, there is an inheritance in heaven for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These are only for those, though, who are made holy, who are sanctified by faith in Christ. This is not for the sincere person only. This is not for the churchgoer only. This is not for the person who's religious. This is for the person who comes to Christ and receives salvation. What a blessing. Number three, how do they respond to the truth of Christ? As you look at this story, we have two major responses to the truth of Christ. First, we have Paul's response when Jesus came and commissioned him. How did Paul respond? Look at verse 19. He said, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. He says, I was not disobedient. I was tempted to be disobedient, perhaps, he said, but it is is not something I did. I was not disobedient. I did not disobey. I took what Jesus said seriously, and I did what God called me to do. I was obedient, full obedience to the truth. Paul was fully obedient to the work that God had commissioned him to do. In fact, if you look at Acts 1.8, what was, the, what was the picture at the very beginning when Jesus is speaking to his apostles? He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now look back at your passage here. Look back at verse 20. Look at what he says. He says, uh, he declared to those in Damascus, in Jerusalem, through the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles. Paul is confirming. He said, I followed Jesus' pattern, Jesus' plat- platform, Jesus' uh, uh, description, what he wanted me to do, his plan. I followed it exactly. I went exactly where God called me to go. And then the message of Christ is clear here. He says, what is his message? That they should repent. What does repent mean? To repent means to change your mind. It means you saw things one way, and now you see things a different way. It demands a change of mind. You cannot repent, or you cannot, a repentance is not just, just saying, okay, that's fine. It, it's like to get someone off your back. We've all been there before when someone comes to your door, and they tell you they're selling you the best cleaning product of all time. 
and they show off this cleaning product. And then you follow them around your house and have them do all your cleaning for you, right? And they're showing you how great it is. And you're like, yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Have you ever seen something so amazing? Never. You know, and so you go along just to get them out the door. And then they're gone. And then you, if someone said, what's the best cleaning product? Like, ah, whatever. It's not. You're just saying that to get them to repent is a real radical change of thinking. When before you were saying, I think I can do my best to get to heaven on my own. I think I got this covered. Or I'm going to obey God. I'm going to be super righteous. Or I'm going to do whatever I can do to get to heaven. That is not how you get to heaven. That is not how you get peace with God. Repentance requires a change of mind. And where do you turn to? Look at this turning. He says that they would turn to God. Turn to God. Away from self. Away from finding the hope in self. And then lastly, what's fascinating here is he says and that, uh, that they should do works that fit repentance. That is that your behavior should fit the mindset that just changed. This is his message to them. They should turn to God. They should do works fitting with repentance. They should repent. Paul had full obedience to the truth, and he had courage to speak the truth in verse 21. For these reasons, he says, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained great help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. He said that his obedience to God led to an assault. He was seized. They tried to kill him, but his obedience to the Lord led to God's protection from these wicked men. He obtained help from God. And as a result of all this, he says, here I stand, before small and great, unimportant people and important people, God cares for everybody, preaching the message that finds its roots in the Old Testament prophecies of Moses, that Moses said would come. Here it is, and here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Look at verse 23. That the Christ, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead, that he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Jesus not only suffered, friends, when he uses the word suffer here, he also, what he means is that Christ died on the cross. Because the next phrase he says is that he rose from the dead. And some people might claim that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Very clearly, the scripture says abundantly clearly that Jesus died on that cross. And he was buried three days. He rose from the dead. And he is the first to rise in two areas. First, he's the first to rise incorruptible. Others had been risen from the dead ahead of Jesus. If you remember stories in the Old Testament, there was a, some young boys who were raised from the dead. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha raised young boys from the dead. Jesus himself had raised Lazarus from the dead in his earthly ministry before his death on the cross, but these were not raised incorruptible. It appears that in every case, those who raised died a natural death, but he is the one who was raised incorruptible, but he's also the one who was raised, he's the primary and and the exemplary one who has been raised from the dead. When we are raised, we are raised in the likeness of Christ. That's what the Bible tells us, because he is the preeminent one that is raised from the dead. This is the, this is the gospel message that he is the light to the Jews and to the Gentiles, because the message doesn't stop with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't stop with the Jewish people. It continues to the sons of Greeks, the sons of Cretans, Africans, Gauls, Asians, the whole world, and yes, even people in South Carolina. The gospel is for us, and the gospel is for the world. 
And I want you to notice the light that goes out. And I, I, this is from Isaiah chapter 60. The Bible tells us, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. There's our word glory, which often is associated with the brightness of God. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, deep darkness cover the people, but the Lord will arise over you. His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. What a wonderful courage he had to speak the truth, but not everyone responds the right way to the truth of the gospel. And lastly, we see several bad responses to the message of Christ in dismissing the message of Christ. And you will find that people who hear the message will dismiss it. In fact, the first we see outright rejection from Festus in verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus, not Agrippa, Festus, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. He's been sitting there listening to this. He doesn't understand the Old Testament. He doesn't understand the Bible. He doesn't understand what's happening, and he is confused, and he finally bursts out after Paul speaks about resurrection as Paul speaks about uh, the gospel message, Paul has been speaking in very educated Greek. You can't tell in our English translation, but this is highly structured, very eloquent Greek. And as he speaks to this, the, the, the style of his speak is, speech is very educated, but the content of his speech is far from what have been acceptable in polite society. He says, Paul, you're crazy. You've been reading too much. And Paul then responds, responds to this directly in verse 25. He says, I am not mad. I am not manic, is the word. Most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. I am speaking truth and I am being reasonable. Verse 26, for the king before whom I speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention since these things were not done in a corner. The message of Jesus is true. It is reasonable. He's not asking Festus. He's not asking Agrippa to believe something ridiculous. He's not asking them to put aside their reason. He's saying this is reasonable. This is true. In fact, it was so done in the open. Everyone knows this is what happened. You know these things are true, verse 26. He says, you know these things are true, O King Agrippa. Your Jewish background, you know about Jesus. You were following this ministry. You know about the resurrection. You know about the people who tried to cover the resurrection. None of this was done in a corner. Jesus done his miracles openly. Jesus taught openly. Jesus was publicly crucified. Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to hundreds of people. The apostles had ministered for years now in Jerusalem and beyond, preaching the news of a resurrected Messiah. This was done publicly. He says, I'm not crazy. This is not madness. This is truth. And he turns to Agrippa and he confronts him in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa found himself in the same place that Paul found himself on the road to Damascus, where here the truth is presented. And he knows the truth. And Paul confronts him with the truth. But Agrippa was kicking against the goats. Agrippa was curious. I believe the Lord was speaking to his heart. I believe the Spirit was working, but he was kicking against the goads. In verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. What tragic words are those? That a man had the opportunity to trust Christ and believe, but he looks around and he's surrounded by people who support him, who think highly of him, and I don't know if it's his pride speaking to him. I don't know what. But Agrippa has heard the truth, 
almost persuaded. Words of truth, words of reason pointed out to him. And at this point, he chooses to deny him. Now, it may be possible that Agrippa got saved later in life. We don't know. But it's amazing that at this scene, the prisoner speaks to the king, and the king is almost persuaded. Then Paul makes a plea in verse 29. He says, I would to God that not only you, but all of you hear me today, might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. He's the only condemned one in that room. He's the only one in prison. He's the one who will be sent to Caesar. But he says, all of those here, basically whether shortly or after a while is what that phrase almost and altogether probably means. He says, whether short and a while might become as I am. I don't want you to become enchained. I'm not saying you need to go to jail. But I want you to know Christ. Do you have a burden for people to know Jesus? Are you burdened for them? Because salvation is not just for the high profile. It's not just for a few. It's for everyone. In fact, in verse 30 then, and when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I want to give several applications here at the end of this message. There are several spots there at the end of your outline. I want you to to look there and, and walk through this with me. First, sincerity is an attitude, but you can be sincere about the wrong things because your sincerity does not mean you are right. And God calls sincere people to examine the truth. And I beg of you, if you're a sincere person, if you're a religious person, if you've lived a good life and you've tried to just do the best you can, and if you said, you know what, I, I've always thought of myself as a good person, if you think that, I, I beg of you, examine the truth, examine the gospel today. You need to be confronted with, lovingly confronted with the truth of Christ. You need to repent, turn to God, and trust in Him for salvation. I know a lot of people who are sincere and their desire to do the right things, but they have examined their beliefs. With, they need to examine their beliefs with the truth of God and His eternal word. You might be religious. You might have been religious your whole life, but can you point to a time when you've recognized you're a sinner and the only way to receive forgiveness of that sin in a home in heaven is to repent, having a radical change in your thinking? Out goes the old way of believing self's ability to do enough to impress God. In comes faith. The only way to live a perfect life, one who died for you so you can live. Out comes the excuses for sin. In comes the responsibility for your sin. You own it. You, you, you claim it. You don't deny it. The biblical word for this is confession. You admit it. Out go the questions like, what will my wife think or what will my friends think? And in come the only person's opinion that matters. Where do I stand before God? Examine truth. Do you believe it? Secondly, God calls us sincere to follow Jesus. Would you follow Jesus' authority? Would you submit yourself to him? Follow his path? Your life will change if you follow Jesus because Jesus calls us to live differently than the rest of the world. And this is radical change. This means that... that and Jesus says things like, unless you hate your father and your mother, you cannot be my disciple. To love Jesus means that he is the preeminent one you love, even if everyone else hates you for loving him. And thirdly, God calls for the sincere to make a decision, to decide. Do, do you, like Festus, mock the things and say, oh, this is just crazy talk. This is, this is ridiculous. You've been reading too much, Pastor Marshall. Much reading has made you mad. Or, or are, you, are you willing to actually consider the truth and the reason, reasonableness here? Can you, are you curious? Like Agrippa, and are you delaying? This, this concerns me the most. Is, 
is when people say, well, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. But there's a fear and there's a delay. And there's a lack of choice to trust in Jesus. Friend, you do not delay. Do not delay. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One of the themes that comes through the book of Acts is the people you think should respond often don't respond rightly. And the people who you least think would respond do. Like think of people who immediately responded in faith. The Philippian jailer, right? Immediately he sees God's hand. And what does he say to Paul? What must I do to be saved? And, and Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he doesn't say, well, you have almost convinced me to become. No, he gets saved and he gets baptized that very night. God shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus and he says, you will do this. And Paul says, yes, sir, Lord. And he goes. But yet God shows up to Ananias, his disciple, and says, go find Paul. And Ananias is like, are you sure, Lord? Are you sure? I've heard a lot of things about that guy. Over and over again, people who are told to do things, who you should know better, the religious people, the sincere people, should know better, often don't. It's not always the people you think who respond to will. Friend, today, would you humble yourself? You might think very highly of yourself today, but I wonder if you'd humble yourself and respond in faith to the God who loves you enough to die for you, who loves you enough to send his son to pay the price you could never pay. Would you bow with me in prayer as we close? Father, we ask that we could come to the cross of the Lamb of God, that we lay all our guilt on Him, that we turn to the Savior, this one who saves us from our sin, who takes all of our burdens off of us. We would not have our own self-righteousness, that we turn from our self-righteousness, turn from our sinful self-righteousness and towards complete dependence on You. Lord, I don't know if there are people here today who've never trusted You. It's very likely in a congregation this size, there are folks who have never trusted you as Savior. They've been relying on their own self-righteousness or their own sincerity, but like Paul, they are mistaken, and they will face you, and they will face your wrath because they are carrying their sins, and their sins have not been paid for by the blood of Christ. Or their sins have not, they have not given those sins to you. You have not, they have not received that gift of salvation through you. Father, I pray you let these folks trust you and receive the gift of salvation. We thank you that you have done the work for every single person, that, you're, that the propitiation is not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world that, that is sufficient. We thank you, Lord. I pray that if there's someone here today who is, who is still in their sins, Lord, that they would, they would confess that, they would repent, or they would, they would see their need to be saved. They would believe on you and receive that gift of salvation. But Lord, for those of us who have been sincere but not following you as we ought, I pray that you would work in our hearts now, that you would soften us to being willing to examine the truth, to follow you, and that we would be willing to make a decision even if it makes, makes life difficult for us, that we would follow you with everything we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.